Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University from the Richard Philip Cavalera Studios. We're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. We got Dallas. We got Mikey. We got myself, Luke. We're all doing pretty good. We're going to talk on upcoming uh, issues regarding the Republican primary coming up. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, of course, is being approved by the SUNY system over there, uh, as well as also the Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, bank closure as well. So stay tuned for that coming through for our first hour, and we'll see you then. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you're doing well. I know it's a bit of a dreary Tuesday today. We got the somewhat nor'easter coming through today, I know, so that's going to be something to look out for. I'll get to weather in a little bit. But Dallas, Mikey, how are we feeling? I know spring break's only a little bit away. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's midterm season for a lot of us here at Hofstra. So for those who have exams coming up, good luck. You're going to do amazing, and don't stress out too much about them. Yeah, I have a big exam tomorrow, so uh, I'm glad the show's not tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, no, nah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you, Luke? I, I'm doing all right. You know, I, I'm wondering, though, how many midterms you all have. Because I was walking with someone last night, and they apparently have six midterms coming oh up. Gosh. I don't know how that's possible, but I'm curious. Because at least for me, we don't really have any midterms for my classes. But again, it's second semester, senior year. I guess you mm-hmm. don't really have any. But I just don't know what it comes for all. Because I know, what, Mikey, freshman, Dallas, we got sophomore year, yeah. right? So I know I have two formal exams for midterms for, like, projects and assignments. Most of my journalism-based classes were doing, like for my videography class, we're doing a video project. But I don't know if that counts as our midterm or if it's just a long-term project. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have, um, so I have like one sit-down exam tomorrow uh, for my oral communications class. And then I have a seven-page paper due, but nothing, but other than that, I don't really have like anything crazy. So yeah, it's not that bad. I feel like it's it's different for us who are like, communications majors mainly mm-hmm. luke you're more liberal arts but like Good. for the stem the stem girlies as i like to call them mm. i see you and i feel you and i feel bad um because that is crazy to have so many formal exams like i have a friend who's a neuroscience major and she's like yeah i have an exam in um, bio and microbiology and chemistry and this class and this class and I was like why do you that's crazy but that's just the way the coursework falls I guess yeah I I know for psychology I had a good amount but definitely those sciences that you mentioned there's Mm -hmm. a lot of exams too much material to remember in my head so 
But uh, applaud anyone who gets that done because that is definitely a uh, grand undertaking mm-hmm. during that time. But we'll see how it goes. Good luck to everybody. And then just remember, spring breaks next week. So that get ready. Yes. You can go relax wherever you're going. If that's the case, take a load off. So that'll be fun. What we're not going to take a load off for is Dallas's dish, of course. Uh, so, Dallas, what, what do we have over there for you uh, in the news realm? So to kick us off in interna- or in national news, my apologies, the three white men who killed Ahmaud Arbery are appealing their federal hate crime convictions as two of them say race didn't play a role in their actions. Heading across the country, in San Diego, at least eight people were killed when two migrant smuggling boats capsized in shallow but what is described as treacherous surf amid heavy fog, authorities said on Sunday, marking one of the deadliest maritime human smuggling operations ever off of U.S. shores. To the Midwest, Illinois will become one of three states to require employers to offer paid time off for any reason after Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a law on Monday that will take effect next year. Starting January 1st, Illinois' employees must offer workers paid time based off of based on hours worked with no need to explain the reasons of their absence as long as they provide notice in accordance with reasonable employer standards. And those are your national news headlines. I'm curious to see how that uh, paid time off works over there. Because mm-hmm. I know it's it's obviously beneficial for people that want to, you know, get things done and all that. Let's say you have something like a, you know, medical emergency. You have a you know, paternity or paternity leave. But I don't know how that necessarily works in terms of it could be for any reason. I mean, I mean, obviously there's good people who take it for valid cases, but I feel mm-hmm. like sometimes people can just kind of use the system in a way. So I'm curious to see how that works when the time comes. Um, so it says that... Um, Illinois employees will accrue one hour of paid leave for every 40 hours worked, up to 40 hours total, although the employer themselves could offer more, and employees can start using the time once they have worked for 90 days. This is exe- an exemption is um, in place for seasonal workers, as will federal employees or college students who work non-full-time temporary jobs for their university. Um, so basically, it's there are rules and restrictions to it. You can only get up to 40 hours of paid time off unless your employer decides to be generous and give you more and it's after like 90 days of being at that specific company in illinois and i believe the other it's like the three states do this including illinois now and it's maine i know is one of them and i'm blanking on the other one Mm, yeah i think it's maine and actually washington dc i think it's another one but Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I like that now people might be able to like take time off for like personal reasons or like mental health reasons. Um, because I think it would erase the stigma of taking time off for mental health reasons because some people don't want to disclose that and they might use it sick leave, but then when they actually get physically sick, then they might not have that wiggle room in certain cases. Um, so yeah. In my uh, in my home state, Maryland, we uh we have we have something like that going on right now too. So cool, pretty cool. I I'm just curious that it's kind of like a it's like a broad brush almost though, where it's like yeah. a- anything. Which mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like obviously mental health is an important aspect, but I I don't know what constitutes an anything kind of uh, mm-hmm. issue with that if something else. But good good that it's there. I don't I'm surprised New York is not on that list uh, at least from what I'm hearing. I guess so. I'm, I'm maybe the state legislature will get to that at some point, but that I'm not sure of. Uh, but what we'll get to, of course, Mikey, is the weather today because I know we got sure. the northeaster coming through and things like that. So what what do we have on that end? Okay, for today's weather forecast, it's currently 37 degrees outside of our WHU studios here at Hofstra and up in the sky. It's 
excited is right now it's a little lightly light, light rain the rest of the day should be rainy with an expected high of 38 degrees during the day and a low of 33 in the evening but there are rumors about potential snow coming in around 11 a.m see i i don't get it what's the whole deal with our show and snow it just always comes we had to cancel it was it two weeks ago yeah. now yeah. at this point so i i don't know why snow is always hitting tuesday it's also like then the lead up to it, everyone's like freaking out about it. And they're like, oh my gosh, the snow's going to be so crazy. It's going to be so bad. People are talking about classes getting canceled. And then like the day of, I'm just like, what was all the, what was all the hullabaloo about? Like, where's, where's my snow? And I don't even like snow. I don't, I don't know if you saw, but it was, I guess it was on Fizz or something. And Will had put on the Snapchat. About he was like, <laughs> they were like, Will Jermaine, tell us if classes are canceled. And he's like, I have no, I have no part in making that decision. Like, Please stop, stop asking me. Shout out Student Government Association President William Germain. Oh yes, for keeping this university going. Oh my gosh, but but he he does not know if this. He can't is make that close. call. That is not him. They do not consult him. <laughs> oh goodness, but yeah, that was that was fun. But I think it's it's not going to be that much snow. I don't think. I yeah, think we should be okay. Upstate though, of course. Is oh my gosh, I have a friend who goes to Cornell, and they're already talking about like classes being canceled, mm. and she's like, yeah. Ithaca is so cold all the time. And I was like, you did elect to make that decision. Yeah. Applau applauds to you, though, for Cornell. She's go. great. Well, while we're at it, we're going to go jump on into our first story here. Uh, so granted, I, I know it does seem a ways away, but I, I'm telling you right now, the shadow primaries are always there. It's always coming through to 2024 because you only got, gosh, I don't even know, what is it, nine months now until 2024 mm -hmm. shows up? So it's it's getting there. Uh, but granted, there's the shadow primary, of course, within the Republican Party. And uh, one thing is that a lot of uh, the people in the Republican Party would suggest that people were trying to move away from uh, former President Donald Trump and that Trump wasn't really uh, the viable option through there. But it doesn't necessarily seem like that's the case for right now, uh, mainly because for the most part, they're more looking at the aspects of what are the television's eyes going to be glued on to if that's the case as well. Uh, so granted, while he is still facing uh, these legal issues and troubles of which he actually got an indictment uh, from the state of New York, I believe, uh, just about this week, um, granted, he said that, quote, uh, these scandals could, quote, enhance my numbers, end quote, going into the primary election season. Um, but yet his challengers itself in the primary within the party, uh, including uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, said that, quote, history will hold Donald Trump accountable for January 6th, end quote, uh, through one of his speeches at the gridiron there. Uh, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley saying that the part uh, of president was for, quote, a new generation of leadership, end quote. Uh, but granted, the GOP is seeming to emphasize the old of the party in that acronym, with Donald Trump's antics and campaign stumps seeming to drown out the unflattering and legal challenges against him. All in all, a chief of political polling firm summed it up breast in that, quote, this is going to be the Trump show. The oxygen is just going to be sucked out of the room, end quote, which will ultimately leave the other candidates gasping for air time. Uh, so granted, I'm curious what you all think in terms of that uh, and what uh, the Republican Party is going toward in that sense uh, with the primary season. I am a firm believer that in all aspects of politics, we need to move towards, as people are describing, a new generation of leadership. As a young person, as a young person of color, for me that looks like a younger generation of leadership who more who will more reflect the future of the United States of America um, in general. So I am a big proponent of moving towards a new generation of leadership, and I do firmly believe that former President Don Donald Trump feels like a firm grasp on things that 
should be left behind, especially with his track record in history. Um, beyond January 6th, um, his comments that he's made in the past towards women, towards people of color, are things that we as a society do not need to hold on to anymore. Um, Delsa Soapbox, we need to switch gears. Um, and I do agree with the GOP that it does feel like a blast from the past, something that's holding them back. And I do can see how his strength um, during his presidency can be something that is scary for people who want to run against him. And But I think that people need to step up and make the motion to say that this is not the leadership we want anymore. And I'll just note super quick, this is from the political article, political article I should say, that's just coming from. And granted, uh, a lot of the article really just talks about how there's still a lot of this emphasis on uh, old uh, Trump policies, for example, January 6th, of course, being a hot button topic through there. And then you had Tucker Carlson uh, putting out this, you know, new footage that was out there that was mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, well, they, you know, they were going in there, but they weren't, you know, trying to really be rioters. They were like welcome visitors and all that stuff. And there's this quote from uh, Ayers over here, uh, Whit Ayers, who's a re- longtime Republican pollster over there. And he says, the quote, just reliving the worst moment of the Trump presidency is probably not exactly what the doctor ordered for 2024. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Mikey, what, what do you think in terms of that? And I guess in a strategist point of view of anything, uh, how that plays out. OK, OK. So first, I'm going to start. OK, I have a lot to say. Um, so first, I'm going to I'm going to go off what Dallas said. Um, we do need um, it's about time for the on, on not just the GOP, really the majority of our parties. Uh, we, we need new leadership uh we have the same think of it like this right to be president you have to be at least 35 years old yep so there's a minimum age president Mm -hmm. because i'm sure they would factor in experience they would factor in maybe potential bias well you could also say back then because the age uh i guess the the common (laughs) age age of how long people lived yes (laughs) but 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 now i mean when you have when you have people who are in their high 70s low 80s running the country how can we fully trust that they're going to make long-term investments in the future that they're not going to be around to see? Mm. Um, Which we'll get to, I know, for Dallas's story <laughs> later on. So oh my a, gosh, that's a preview right there. But go ahead, Mikey. So, so that's then furthermore, as, as far as far as this goes, um, from a strategist's point of view, Trump has a, you know, someone someone said something pretty interesting to me the other day, and I don't remember who it was, but said what if trump just made his own party like could he, would he be successful if he made his own party well, well remember there was the whole patriot party that was yeah. going around i think a little exactly. while back um i now now i think and what what i what i think is going to happen in primaries is i think ron DeSantis is going to run ron DeSantis is going to be that new face of the gop mm. i think he will i i think um i think he'll beat out donald trump and i think he'll face um, whether it be uh, the, the incumbent pre- the incumbent president or whether it be if the Democrats put up a new face. Um, but I don't see this really kind of working out for uh, Mr. Trump. I, I don't I don't see it. Also in the political article to hop off of what Mikey said, um, Trump's approval ratings do seem to be slipping. And then uh, many Republicans have told Republican voters have told pollsters that they are, quote, willing to look elsewhere. Um, after the series of recent developments that kept the party fixated on him and like the scandals that have uh, defined his time in office, it has left kind of a sour taste in people's mouths, um, which rightfully, understandably so. Even when Donald Trump was running for re-election, I remember that an unprecedented wave of Republicans were vocal just about 
not supporting this for the party, wanting to go back to different values and seeing that they didn't see Donald, President Trump, Donald Trump as a good representation of Republican politics, um, which I don't think he is. Um, I have grown up being a Democrat, but I do see how president, the former president has kind of skewed the Republican Party's, what I thought they were, root values growing up, and has really just taken them and run them to a, a place where I never thought the country would see. Like, I never expected that the Capitol building would be attacked in my lifetime, but that is something that I saw. Like that was that was eighteen twelve. This is it. Exactly. I was like, where am I right now? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think it would be a good move for the GOP to, I don't want to say prop someone up, but find a new successor, a strong successor, who could potentially just reroute the trajectory of Republican politics. But then who is that successor in that sense? Because I know, Mike, you, you did say Ron DeSantis over there, but I just yeah. wanted to throw in at least uh, that for one, he hasn't, it's himself he hasn't officially declared run. through there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I uh, think, I just strongly think he will. I mean, there's a lot of speculation, but again, that's speculation. Yeah, I agree with Mikey. It's speculation. At the same time, I do not see eye to eye with some of Ron DeSantis' policy decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, like the way he handled the African-American studies co- AP course yep. really upset me and frustrated me. Um, I know Nikki Haley has thrown her hat into the ring. I don't personally know much about her as from a leadership position, but I don't know if she's the strongest candidate to go toe to toe with former President Donald Trump mm. just based on the strength and power of his base that still holds on to him. So I don't really know. I, I, th- I, I think... Um, well, I think a few things. One, I, um, I definitely, I don't, I don't know what's taking up so long, but I, but I do, um, personally, personally me, I, I'm not a, a, a huge fan of a lot of the census policies. Um, granted, um, I think Ron DeSantis coming to Staten Island, uh, f- a few weeks ago, uh, the event I was at speaking about basically just bringing his policies to Staten Island and seeing that, that amount of support. Um, I was, I was there, I was there to report, not as a fan. Um, I, I, th- I think, I think he's going to make a run. So then my question is, he makes a run, right? Other than Ron DeSantis, I can't think of any, obviously Nikki Haley threw her hat out, but, but I, I can't think of anyone actually that would legitimately stop, um, Donald Trump from making a full run because he, he just has, he, he has the most momentum to his name. He has it's think it's kind of like the idea of like a name brand that he has. Donald Trump is a brand. I mean, the the name is the brand exactly. Mm-hmm. A, a, and I think I think it'll be I, I think it'll be extremely entertaining. Uh, of course. I think like uh, seeing seeing him in seeing seeing Trump uh, already being a primary, see, seeing seeing him uh, what back on Twitter. If he goes back, if he goes back, no indication that he will. If he goes back, but um. But I, I think I think this will definitely be an, an interesting election. But one thing that I find really interesting is that he he is seventy six, um, and a few years ago, uh, when running against Joe Biden, his critique and a lot of the Republican critique was that of Joe Biden's age. But now we're kind of nearing the same exact thing for Trump. So mm. I think that's also a factor to keep in mind if that if that same Republican stance stands. Mm-hmm. Or well, then they would all they would all go they would yeah. all go towards a younger candidate. But then, just my question is, who is the younger candidate? I don't, I 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm curious what, what you think on this, Dallas, because at least for this end, you have um, former Vice President Pence, uh, Nikki Haley, who was the former UN ambassador, and then Mike Pompeo, who did, I think, CIA, if I remember correctly. And all three of them were part of the Trump administration. So how, how does that play into effect of if they're going to run against their former boss and say, well, I don't like his policies or what he's you know going to, but yet you were ones who were in the cabinet mm-hmm. who would essentially endorse those policies. I think I think one one factor to keep in mind is I think there's if you notice in politics we usually just have the same names over and over again and the reason we have the same names over and over again is for two reasons one party discipline is a serious issue uh, I I, w- I would I would definitely say it was, is that it's an issue but two people do go with familiarity mm. uh, people people are naturally comfortable with familiarity uh, for better or for worse so I think I think that people are going to automatically associate because we're taking if I'm taking the average voter the average voter is not going to do 3 hours of extensive research it's just simply true um the Honestly, the average voter might do. It will be lucky if the average voter does five to ten minutes of research. Like the look at the name on the ballot, yeah. circling. Mm-hmm. I, mean. I mean, I mean, really. So, so I think, I think what what's going to happen is they will automatically affiliate them with Trump, meaning, for better or for worse, they'll either select them or they'll just say, "Well, part of the Trump administration, I'll take their former boss." Mm-hmm. I also just think it's a big show of personal strength to go against the former boss, especially with the way that he's just able to for lack of better words, slander people and get people angry at you. Like, I remember um, when he made, like, negative comments towards Ron DeSantis a while ago. I don't like remember. The sanctimonious or yeah. something was the, yeah. yeah, when he said that, like, he's just able to fire up a crowd in a way that I feel like is unlike any politician we've ever seen before, at least in my lifetime. And so it's it's a scary thing to do, probably, because he has so much we'd like to talk about how strong he used to be he still has a firm grip on um his base one way or another and i do think it's something that they probably have taken into careful consideration and anyone who has who has the idea of running against him has probably taken into careful consideration of just how much they'll be willing to take from him but i do think it's something that you're just gonna have to face one way or another um, hopefully they'll be able to sway at least the people who are extremely dissatisfied with the former president um, and maybe just change the minds of people who are maybe on the fence or people who are still deep in that base. But I'm not sure who the strongest candidate is in my head. It might be uh, Ron DeSantis if he decides to run. Um, he would be the strongest candidate just because he's been able to get, garner his own base one way or another. And even though... He's kind of been put through the ringer with co- negative comments from former President Donald Trump. He se- still seems to have been able to take strides forward in his political career. Well, we'll see. I'm just going to look up current polling before we uh, get to the our next story here. <laughs> right now it says from March 4th to March 7th. And I guess I don't know exactly. It's just from. Oh, it's from 538. OK, so for 538, they have uh, Donald Trump at 52 percent. Ron DeSantis, if he runs, at 26%. Nikki Haley at 7%. And Mike Pence at 5%, with others being Ted Cruz with 5%. I don't know if he's actually indicated anything with that of any interest. Uh, Former Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney at 2%. And the senator 
from, I believe, I, I forget Tim Scott, if it's North Carolina or South Carolina, uh, but polling at 1% through there. So even people who aren't really looking so far at the presidency are still trying to dip their toe in the water, uh, getting some potential votes through there. Uh, nevertheless, Dallas, I know if you want to go in through, we got to the national spotlight for presidencies, now the national spotlight on banking. Uh, so feel free to take us into what we got. If you have been following the news recently, you have seen that the United States government has taken extraordinary steps this past weekend in attempts to stop a potential banking crisis after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. This is described as the second largest bank failure in the nation's history. This announcement came amid fear that the factors that ca caused the Santa Clara, California-based bank to fail could spread across the country. Regulators have worked all weekend to try to find a buyer for the bank, and those efforts had appeared to fail. On Sunday, the New York-based Signature Bank had also failed and was seized at more than $110 billion in assets, and Signature Bank is now described as the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. In attempts to rebuild confidence in the banking system, the Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and FDIC said all Silicon Valley Bank steps are being taken to protect the bank's companies in future. Um, the Treasury has set aside $25 billion to offset any losses incurred under the Federal Emergency Lending Facility, and federal officials said, however, that they do not expect to have to use any of that money, given that the securities posted as collateral have a low risk of default. So, it has been a rough time for people, and there are a lot of financial fears in the United States, but something that I thought was really interesting that I've been seeing on, like, line is people, especially younger people, comparing the situation and seeing that the United States government is doing so much to counter-set the bank failures that are happening, and then people are comparing it to the student loan crisis and the fact that people are still having to pay off their student loans and we're still being held up with student loan forgiveness just in general. And I saw somebody say, like, nobody should ever pay for their student loans again if the United States is able to just put up $25 billion dollars. Um, to offset a banking failure. Again, I am not an economist. Um, I don't know the validity of comparing these two situations, but I do understand that that is a very interesting point to see that we're putting s so many people would be positively impacted by um, student loan forgiveness being put in place just in general. And then we see that on the other side, um, the banking system could fail and then the United States government will just scramble so quickly to um, offset it to do what they can to make the situation better and people are just questioning the strength of our banking system in general it's it's a sense of priorities uh, I think I think unfortunately um, well like when you when you compare it to the to, to student loan issues um, because I mean I mean it's a to, like that's a like we say like that is a crisis like that is seriously seriously a crisis student loan debt people people spend their whole lives never paying it off i know somebody um who when i was in middle school was a teacher of mine said that he was going to be paying off his loan until he was 74 years old seven seventy four um but no it's a, it's a matter of priorities it's about, but it's it's a bad look um it's all it really is to, it's, it's just a bad look yeah it is a very bad look especially in terms of like the United States from a standpoint internationally, um, like in Asia, uh, people in Asian markets, specifically in Japan, experience a lot of concern over the United States bank failures. Um, and apparently, uh, Hiru Hirokazu Matsunu, 
the Japanese, a Japanese government spokesman, told reporters that a major ripple effect to the Japanese financial system was unlikely, but there were fears set across regional ben- benchmarks that lowered the benchmarks in morning trading. So it does have an effect on international uh, finances, if that is the proper way I want to describe it, to see that the United States is going through this tumultuous time with our banking system. Um, a bunch of different be- benchmarks for trading has dropped in the wake of this in Japan and Australia and South Korea, as well as in Shanghai and Hong Kong. So people are watching the United States scramble in this manner, and I do understand that the federal government is trying to rebuild that trust by putting these policies in place, but people are still concerned and people are now kind of taking a moment to realize that something that might, I don't want to say better serve the public because if the banking system fails across the country, that would be a very bad thing and that would not be good for the public, but something that would serve the public on a more individualized level, such as student loan forgiveness, is now being pushed back into the forefront of conversation just in reflection on how the government is handling that crisis versus this one. I, I'm just curious, and it's like the the employee stature of the banking spot. I know you mentioned the signature bank, uh, one that closed up, but apparently, according to Reuters, uh, they were having Starbucks and like ordering from an Italian restaurant for catering before all this went down. So I guess they they uh, a lot of the times with the banking system, obviously, it's a too big to fail mantra. If anything, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the times. You know, I- employees and stuff of that industry are just like, well, we're, we'll be okay. You know, we're not really too worried about that. And then they kind of all, you know, shuffled along and went away after the fact. Uh, so I, I guess there's that aspect to it. And then how the, I guess the tech industry more so responds to this too is definitely going to be something. But one thing I guess that was interesting I saw this morning was that the Kremlin had to go and say that Russia was fine after <laughs> the uh, banking collapse. They wanted to assure themselves uh, that they were okay. Uh, mm-hmm. in that sense too so i you know i don't really know in terms of that yeah but. and a big thing from the article that i read from there's an article posted on the ap that's very intensive and covers it from multiple different levels as well as cnn also posted an article if anyone would like to read on their own um but people are very concerned about how this will affect um mid-sized banks uh that investors have kept relatively calm over the health of the like investors are calm about big banks like the biggest banks in the country like Citigroup, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. Um, Silicon Valley Bank is described as a mid-sized bank. The one in New York is also viewed as a mid-sized bank. But in general, people are afraid of how this will impact smaller, more individualized or local banks um, because people are just unsure if the United States will contribute as much to smaller banks or be as invested in the health and wellness of smaller banks. Um, Bigger banks, as we mentioned before, like J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the nation's biggest banks that has more than $3, million, $3 trillion in assets, only fell to 1.8%, but smaller banks have been falling at a more steeper decline, especially with how two mid-sized banks on different ends of the country have just failed. So that's something that people are keeping tabs on, the United States' responses to helping smaller banks. Well, well, we'll see what happens there, certainly. So granted, hopefully not more banking failures, if anything else. We're only going to find out from there how that works when the time comes. But otherwise, we are going to go and throw it for a bit of a breakthrough here. When we get back, uh, Mikey's going to go discuss on the new SUNY system aspect uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion classes. But first, it is certainly a wild world out there. We'll get use of Cat Stevens on before we get you back through there. So we'll see you all then. 
Wake up your mind. Start your day with Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Weekday mornings, 7 till 9 a.m. Lively talk about Long Island life. National news and international issues from the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. Inclusion, diversity, equity, and social justice are now prerequisites for first-year SUNY students. Some SUNY campuses have already started to impose these requirements, but now it's becoming mandatory for all 64 SUNY campuses. It was back in February 2021 when SUNY announced the new 25-point inclusion, diversity, and equity plan. The specific requirements were publicized later that year in December. SUNY's interim senior associate academic affair provost, David Cantafa, participated in the movement to help students transition from high school to diverse college campuses. And I, I, I think this is, I think this is a great thing. I think that this is something that um, is definitely good to bring into effect. I mean, we, we look at and we see different forms of microcosms. We see different forms of prejudice um, that people, a lot of people, just grow up with. A lot of people grow into um, having a new generation um, come out of that. I think is, I think is a very impactful thing. Yeah, I do agree, especially with as we talked before in the past even just today, um, across the country, there has been, seemed to be, for lack of better words, an attack on the United States educational system um, from a younger grade level standpoint, especially in public schools and high schools and things like that, of just getting rid of the nation's history that paints it in a bad light. And oftentimes that comes with teaching about different backgrounds and populations from a diversity standpoint, like changing curriculum that focuses on people of color, uh, like in the indigenous populations of the United States, African Americans in the United States, um, and things like that have seemed to be trying to be scraped away from the nation's history, but it's great to see that there is seems to be a major investment being made in promoting um, the importance of teaching history or just the diversity of the United States on an academic level, especially in higher education. Um, I hope this becomes a thing across the country. I do know it's more for liberal arts. It might be easier for liberal arts educations, but from a quote from the Newsday article, uh, Gabe Kantafa, as Mikey mentioned, um, who's the associate for associate provost, said that, quote, there's a strong academic, historical, and sociological basis for this in multiple disciplines, um, even in STEM fields and health professions. So it's good to see that they're taking it from an all-encompassing standpoint. It's just not necessarily for those in liberal arts fields. Um, because it is important to do this in STEM, especially in health professions, if you deal with diverse populations in general. I'm, uh, I'm just going to take this from the actual uh, guidance that SUNY put out that I found through here. So it says exactly, I guess, what uh, the content is looking for for the courses. So in, their, uh, in the acronym, at least, for DEISJ, meaning uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice, uh, must be foundational to the course. Uh, thus, content and learning activities of courses approved for the DEISJ knowledge and skills category must have significant course content and learning activities that explore race, class, and gender identity, as these three core identities provide a baseline framework for this outcome. Uh, granted, I just, I'm not entirely sure if it has to incorporate all three of them at the same time or if it's kind of a separate aspect there. Because I know at least for Hofstra, we have our cross-cultural classes, which in that sense you can kind of take any one of these in there. But I'm just curious how they're going to format these courses uh, to include all three of them, if anything else. Is it going to be more like a general structure in that end, or what do you think they're going to do for curriculum-wise? Uh, yeah. Also, further in the Newsday article, apparently a lot of lawmakers um, wanted further clarification in similar ways to you, Luke. Yeah. Just like... Some have, uh, I'm getting the name, State Senator Dean Murray 
from each patchaw uh, said that he and others on the Senate Education Committee were now reassured by the SUNY Chancellor, his explanation. Um, however, he did say that he wants to see course content and make sure students are not graded on whether they express belief in the ideas they may not agree with, and just further explanation of the content of the course, like what specific points the courses must hit, like what those requirements look like. Because I do agree this is kind of a broad plan. And again, it might be outlined more in depth somewhere else. Um, but I do think it's a good plan on surface level and face value. But just to see what specific courses might be offered um, in what disciplines and things like that. I, I will just note for the guidance itself, it's for associate's degrees, for associate of arts and associate of science, and all baccalaureate degrees. So not necessarily on the graduate level, but undergrad-wise, it is the requirement through there. Mm. I think I, I, it kind of reminds me of... Um, like a lot of people often say like things like why don't they teach us insert thing in school a big thing people say is like taxes or something like that financial literacy yep. yeah th th this is this is this is an example of them doing that now they 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 are teaching something that they should teach in school they're they're going out of their way to do that i think that's a good thing and it only makes the world a better place, obviously, because then you get a, a full understanding of everything that goes around you. And a lot of the times when students go to these institutions, it's their first time being exposed to a lot of these theories, a lot of these aspects of life mm -hmm. in general. So I think it's a benefit to them, if anything else, uh, in regards to that. Yeah. And some schools have taken the time to reflect on the courses that they offer and how they can adjust to meet these new standards. So at Farmingdale State College, as of right now, about a quarter of their courses qualify. And that is from their senior vice president and provost, Laura Joseph. But she said that they're really going to make efforts to hit the ground running and make sure that they have enough courses to satisfy these requirements. And f in order to do so, they're making new and adapted courses um, from her words in anthropology, sociology, literature, political science, and other fields that will qualify under the new rule. And that their instructors must, quote, undergo training to become a certified DEI and social justice instructor including how to, quote, engage students in discussions around sensitive issues. So it seems from an administrative standpoint, they're making the efforts to not only introduce these new courses, but make sure those teaching those courses have the proper training on how to handle this subject matter in a way that will fulfill these new requirements, which I think is really important because sometimes people just make the effort to offer the course and then not take the proper steps to make sure this course is sound from in terms of just the content to the person teaching the course and that everyone is comfortable with how it's being handled because nothing's worse than trying to do good work and then it being handled improperly or poorly. Do, do you happen to know what the courses are that are approved already or are you not um, sure? I, out of curiosity. It does not say specific courses, um, just that half of the courses, a quarter of the courses that they are currently offering. Okay, I have one for SUNY Old Westbury so then the fall of 2022, about 37 different courses at SUNY Old Westbury of about their 700 met the diversity general education requirements that have been in place on campus since 2001. Uh, courses such as social determinants of health and adulthood and aging fulfilled as existing requir requirements would also potentially and probably meet the new diversity requirements. So that's for SUNY Old Westbury, but for Farmingdale State College, I am unsure. Okay. But... A lot of schools have just been taking the time to reflect on how they've engaged in DE&I, and it's nice to see that they're admitting to where their shortcomings are and highlighting where their positives are and then moving forward to add more positives or just further diversify their courses. Um, 
at Stony Brook, uh, they have a category called DIV category, which is closely related to DNI. And DIV at Stony Brook stands for Respect, Diversity, and Foster Inclusiveness. Um, and so some of the courses that they offer uh, could also satisfy core requirements, and some courses include Contemporary Caribbean Women's Literature, which also meets humanities and global issue categories, and, quote, the Early Republic, which also carries an American history designation. So it's nice to, s- it's really fun to see, like, to have different schools handle these topics and issues, and how different schools, like, offer courses for students, because Caribbean women's literature sounds really fun. Mm. Um, I would love to take a class like that. Um, Hofstra also offers a bunch of different cool courses in that manner, but just to see what other schools are doing um, to further uh, plans for promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in the United States. And then especially for the SUNY system itself, because you have 64 different institutions Mm -hmm. in just that one state system, which has a lot to offer through there. And I think they're going to have their own uh, spin on it, if you will, for various courses, uh, various aspects in which we're going to do it. Uh, So it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. Hopefully not too much uh, backlash, if anything else. But granted, there's always going to be somebody complaining Mm -hmm. about something. uh, So there's always going to be that. Uh, nevertheless, though, we are going to go throw it. Uh, Mikey, if you want to introduce your interview that you did or just give a bit of a perspective on it before we uh, head on into it. Yeah, so I did an interview with a, somebody from a gas and oil company on basically the implications of the Willow Project and just what exactly this means for New York. Uh, I thought that, I thought this was a pretty interesting thing that, that provides a, a good amount of insight. So um, it, take it away. All right. Yeah, it sounds good. We'll play it now. With loads of concern relating to the Willow Project, now just a quick background on what the Willow Project is for any viewers who don't know, the Willow Project is a project of oil drilling in the north slope of Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve by the Arctic Sea. Now again, with much public concern, I'm asking you, what does this mean for the state of New York? Well, what it means is greater energy availability, greater savings in price, but also most importantly, Michael, greater energy security. Since the northern slope of Alaska is, of course, American territory, that means that the petroleum products that are derived therefrom are completely within our national sovereignty. Furthermore, okay, because they are, let's call them homegrown pr- production, that will mean a cost savings as opposed to imported oil coming from uh, faraway places, especially the Middle East or other po- points in Asia. But again, I think the most important thing is energy security. We see recently the turmoil in the energy markets in the United States specifically, as well as the world worldwide with respect to the, the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the disruptions that's caused. We've also seen most recently the, shall we call it, the lack of cooperation with the sovereign nation of Saudi Arabia with respect to adjusting for that and basically trying to assist the Western nations and other friendly economies such as the U.S. in essentially reducing dependence upon Russian oil and in addition to that also depriving Vladimir Putin of the revenue he derives by selling oil to other nations. So by basically having more petroleum to satisfy our energy needs, we are more self-reliant. We are in greater control of our prices. There are cost savings to be had, but above above all else, uh, we are more energy secure. I am old enough to remember the turmoil, and it was ghastly to say the least, with respect to the oil embargoes in the early 70s and the disruptions that caused to American economies, businesses, and our personal lives. In the last decade, we went through a surge where, by virtue of increased offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, increased production in Alaska, 
as well as uh, hydraulic fracturing in various states. Again, it's prohibited in New York, regrettably. But we went from being a net importer of oil, that is oil coming in, to a net exporter of oil. And for the first time in almost 100, uh, about 70 years, we became very secure in control of our own destiny with respect to energy. Unfortunately, one of the uh, part of the price we've paid as we're trying to move towards renewables is there's been more disparagements of fossil fuels. And that's caused a contraction in our fossil fuel resources. And while that's good for the environment, that makes us, for the moment, more dependent upon foreign sources of petroleum and uh, so forth. And so for that reason, it makes us less secure and more vulnerable to, let's call it political pressure, political intervention from nations outside the U.S. and some of them not altogether friendly to our national interests. Political pressure is obviously a very big factor, but also I wanted to look at social pressure. So the hashtag Stop Willow is trending on TikTok, having accumulated over 150 million views. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how impactful is a call to action from citizens like that on social media, really? Well, I think it's always good. Again, we live in America, and God bless America. We live in a democracy where we are allowed to participate in the uh, uh, the process, the democratic process, by voicing our views via social media. And that's a right that we take for granted as Americans. But as we well know, there are parts of the world where social media is controlled, monitored, and censored by governmental entities. I think certainly that's important for social media to be an outlet for people who oppose the project. But likewise, it also can be an outlet for people who support the project. With respect to the pressure brought to bear, if you will, by social media, no doubt it has an effect. But again, I think the most important thing is I don't view it, Michael, as pressure. I view it as contributing to the ongoing debate, assuring that all points of view were heard from. Then do you think that there's any more impactful ways that an average nutritionist could help, whether it be through activism or whether it be through personal action, recycling and stuff like that? Yeah, well, first of all, again, you've mentioned social media, which is a fine outlet. But to me, the most powerful tool available to we as Americans is the power of the ballot, okay, to vote. So basically, if you are support a more environmentally conscious point of view, vote for candidates who espouse those views. If you look for a more balanced approach, vote for those candidates, so on and so forth. So that, again, is how we Americans determine our laws and our more, and equally so our policies in that regard. Uh, what we see now, for example, here on a fe- federal level, as well as the state level, is a further call for uh, more environmentally conscious policies. New York State has various laws in place. There are federal tax grants to promote more renewable energy, okay? And thus, that would be basically as in opposition to products based upon fossil fuels such as willow. And again, this is a reflection of the American people saying we want policies like this. But on the other hand, it also allows for debate because there are there is more than one viewpoint, certainly. And those folks who want a balanced approach, likewise, can be heard of at the ballot box. And I think that's one of the things because we have to keep in mind is this. There are multiple viewpoints here. No single viewpoint is absolutely correct. And also, it's something where we want to make progress but progress comes with a certain amount of, shall we call them, growing pains and costs. And that's something that we have to find a balancing factor to, okay? It can't be force-fed upon the American people. And I think there are certainly voices out there to be heard and should be heard that have said, look, okay, you, you can't force this change overnight. It needs to be gradual. It needs to be uh, uh, sensible. It needs to be economically feasible. This is your wake-up call. You're listening to Radio Hofstra University, available worldwide at WRHU.org. 
and welcome back. You're currently listening to the Tuesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call with myself, Dallas Jackson, Mike Dent, and Luke Farrell. So we're going to get jump into our next story. As yesterday, the Biden administration had approved a controversial oil drilling plant project in Alaska, which has sparked the condemna- condemnation of those across the globe. The approval of Coconut Phillips' big willow drilling project by the Bureau of Land Management will allow three drill sites, including up to 199 total wells. Two other drill sites proposed for the project will be denied, and Coconut Phillips chairman and CEO Ryan Lance called the order, quote, the right decision for Alaska and our nation. Climate activists were outraged that Biden approved the project, which they say puts his climate legacy at risk. Allowing the drilling plan to go forward marks a major breach of Biden's campaign's promise to stop new oil drilling on federal lands, they say. Climate activists were outraged um, just in general. Climate activists were outraged by the approval and just the drilling plan to go forward marks uh, differences in campaign promises and the oil project could produce up to 1,080 180,000 barrels of oil a day, creating up to 2,500 jobs during construction and 300 long-term jobs, and generate billions of dollars in royalties and tax revenue for the federal, state, and local governments, the company said. Separately, the administration moved to protect more than 13 million acres within the Petroleum Reserve, a 23 million acre chunk of land in Alaska's North Slope, set aside a century ago for future oil production. The announcement came a day after the administration, in a move in the other direction towards conservation, said it would bar or limit drilling in some other areas of Alaska and the Arctic Ocean. Monday's announcement is not likely to be the last word, with litigations expected from environmentalist groups. Yeah, that's a that's definitely a, a, a tricky spot, I think, for the president to be in, because on one hand, you have the aspect of, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a conservationist, I'm going to be an environmentalist, you know, protect all of these land bases and things like that. But then at the other hand, it's, well, we have the economic output that we need to have. And if we have to go and get this oil that's needed, I guess there's that aspect to it. But granted, I think it's more of a hypocritical stance for anything to just say, well, I'm just going to endorse this drilling that's going to be done now and open these oil reserves to everybody else. Uh, but I know uh, at least Dallas and I mentioned before more on like indigenous populations, obviously from Alaska, you know, they're not going to be content with this at all, I'm sure. Uh, even if you do protect about, you know, what, what did you say? It was, 13, was it 13 million acres? What was the... It was, they're protecting 13 million acres within the reserve. Yep. Um, and it's just a 23 million acre chunk of land on Alaska's North Slope specifically. Um, and that was originally set aside like a while ago for o- future oil production. So part of that land will now just be not allowed to be used for this. And interesting to see though that at least from the AP article that you mentioned says, quote, the project located in the fairly designated National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska, enjoys widespread political support in the state. Alaska's bipartisan congressional delegation met with Biden and his advisors in early March to plead their case for the project. And Alaska Native state lawmakers recently met with Holland, uh, Deb Holland, the uh, Interior Secretary, to urge support, which is interesting to see uh, how, I guess, everyone's kind of coalescing together on this aspect, even though it is kind of an environmental danger uh, mm-hmm. through there. It was uh, actually Senator Lisa Mikowski from Alaska uh, over there had said that Monday, the quote, the decision was, quote, very good news for the country, end mm-hmm. quote. So interesting to see how that dichotomy works there. Mike, what are we thinking? I think I think this goes back to what I said earlier um, about the idea of how old how how old people in power are and how how fully invested they are in making decisions for the now and not the future, Um, because while look, while this does help short term, it's, it's, it's a matter of short term versus long term. 
I agree with that. I do think maybe in terms of economic success, it looks like a good plan on that surface level. But when you dig deeper, um, it looks it's a bad look. It's a currently a bad look for the president, especially since he's tried to be very strong on cl- climate leadership and promoting um, a good long term future for just global health in general. And actually, Earth Justice President Abigail Dillon said that, quote, this decision greenlights 92 percent of proposed oil drilling by Coconut Phillips and hands over one of the most fragile, intact ecosystems in the world and says further that this is not climate leadership and apparently president biden understands the existential threat of climate change but phillips went on to or dylan went on to say but he is approving a project that derails his own climate goals end quote so people are really taking a hard stance on the current president um just in general because they saw that he wanted to do better for climate change in america across the globe and they expected policies that reflected that and this does not look like a policy that reflects that at all, um, especially with how people are describing the specific area of Alaska and the value that it has from an ecological standpoint. And again, I'm not a big fan of people making decisions for monetary reasons when it would have negative consequences in the long-term future of sustainability. So this is also a, a policy that I don't approve of in general. I'll just say that it's the uh, the city of Nuksut, uh, which apparently is in Alaska over there. Their mayor said that, quote, there are, quote, many who would like to say everybody in Alaska supports oil and gas development. Well, for our village, this development is in the wrong area, end quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then I'm also wondering in terms of this, because you have the Alaskan, some Alaskan native leaders, again, as you mentioned, for the indigenous populations that are actually approving of this plan uh, through there as well. So I think it's interesting to see how that changes up when the time is around, too. But. Yeah, Um. Just with another quote that's in the article, um, Chrissy Goldfuss, a former Obama White House official who is now a policy chief of the National Resource Defense Council, said that she was deeply disappointed with Biden's decision and said that this decision is bad for the climate, bad for the environment, and bad for the native Alaska communities who oppose this and feel their voices were not heard. So as Luke mentioned, there seems to be a lot of back and forth and disagreement um, from many different parties when it comes to this decision and as i mentioned before this might not be the last week here of this dis- decision because environmental groups and i could imagine uh native groups in alaska will have things to say when they submit litigations or take this further into the justice system so yeah. it's something we will have to follow yeah definitely a, a development story as it is if anything else uh certainly something to look out for uh when the time comes so we, we are going to go uh, through into our next hour. So we're going to see you on the other end. We actually have two interviews coming up. So pretty excited for that. Don't want to spoil anything, though. Uh, so make sure to not change that dial. We will get back to you once we get through the top of the hour. We will see you on the other side. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
Good morning, everybody. We're on hour two right now of the morning wake-up call at WRHU. We got myself, Dallas Jackson, and Mikey Dent again. We're going to have some interviews going through with the Pew Research Center regarding the gender wage gap in just a little bit. Uh, Also, another interview regarding uh, declining IQ scores in the United States uh, and also some various other stories to get to when we'll have that there. Otherwise, we'll get to you in a little bit, and we'll see you then. And welcome to the second hour of the Hofstra Morning Wake Call. Uh, as always, bringing you Long Island life, national news, and international issues. As Luke mentioned at the top, it's him, me, Dallas, and Mikey. Uh, we do have a couple of local news updates before we get into our interview for the hour, our first interview of the hour. So for those on Long Island, Governor Kathy Hochul on Monday nixed plans for the Long Island tra- for Long Island travelers who would be able to connect to LaGuardia by rail as plans for a new air train that would have linked... Air, the airport to the LIWR's Port Washington line have been scrapped. Um, Suffolk Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison says the department will meet weekly on missing persons cases, and the commissioner is hoping that this new initiative will help police solve or generate leads in at least 65 missing persons cases. In upstate, in Albany, the state Republican committee announced yesterday to unanimously elect Edward Cox to be its state chairman, and Cox promised to turn the GOP's November wins on Long Island into, quote, a statewide wave. And today, in North Hempstead, town supervisor Jennifer DeSena is apparently planning to nominate a previously rejected comptroller candidate for the same job at today's town meeting. It has been 15 months since the municipality has had an official in that position permanently. And so those are your updates and headlines from around the island. Definitely island ones to get to, if anything else. I know, I guess one aspect of there for the island, is there any other, like I, I guess, fun events going on on the island at all? Is there anything uh, looking forward to, anything around that area at all? And, uh, um, I'm not sure, but I do know that Hofstra had a chocolate expo. I went the other day expo. was it fun yeah. you know well the thing is they gave you a student discount so i'm like okay that's great you can mm-hmm. do that and then i went there and they had this one uh place it was karen's collectibles and it was just all m&m stuff oh so you wow. can get like m&m mugs cookie jars uh calendars figurines mm-hmm. it was all collectibles which was great my but my mom was looking for chocolate so i'm like I'll, I'll get her something why not and but the thing is they had like all this specialty chocolate they had toffee they had chocolate covered bacon they had uh cbd infused uh, chocolate and like ice cream like alcohol infused ice cream in there for chocolates so that was interesting uh but granted oh the girl scouts were there of course they got to show up for that mm. uh, but also there was stuff for like pickles too and popcorn so it wasn't just chocolate uh but yeah i got her some dark chocolate raisins so she was happy so that was definitely good that's but, cool Hopefully one thing we'll be happy about at some point is the weather. It might not be today, but it'll be at some point. So, Mikey, what we got for the weather-wise here? So, for today's weather forecast, it's currently 37 degrees outside of our WRSU studios here at Hofstra. And up in the sky, it's still light rain. The rest of the day should be rainy with an expected high of 38 degrees during the day and a low of 33 in the evening. Again, there is a chance for snow coming in at around 11 a.m., but we'll see. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping snow is not coming, but I don't think it's really in, in the cards today for us, if anything. So we'll have to figure out how that goes uh, while we're at there as well. Uh, otherwise, we are going to go and get through to our interview spot that we have through here. 
Uh, so one thing that we're focusing on today itself is the gender wage gap. Of course, you don't know what that gap is itself. Uh, mainly, it's the difference in wages that you have uh, through with men and women in the United States. Uh, and generally, as a term, it usually has uh, its connotation through there in the fact that women earn about 82 cents to the dollar of what men earn in the United States. Uh, not only is this a problem uh, nationally itself, uh, but also in international cycles as well. Uh, but granted, uh, a lot of new research has been coming out uh, through this aspect as well uh, within the gender wage gap that we have. Uh, so in order uh, to go and deal and talk about this situation itself, uh, we do have uh, Dr. Rakesh Kochar, who's a senior researcher for the Pew Research Center. Uh, and also uh, the Pew Research Center is a good uh, spot for the show for us as well. That's been on before with uh, Dr. Richard Fry. Uh, but otherwise, uh, Dr. Kachar, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you're welcome, Luke. So we're, we're just going to get right into it for yourself and your research that you have. So the key point that you necessarily drive home in your findings itself uh, is that the gender pay gap hasn't really moved that much within the past 20 years. So what would you say attributes to that and why is that something that you found within your research? So there, there are many factors at work that cause the gender wage gap to remain around 80 cents to the dollar. Uh, first, parenthood has an impact on the pay gap. So all the women with children at home earn about the same as women with no children at home. We find that fathers earn more than both groups of women and more than other men too. And this is referred to as the fatherhood wage premium. And it creates a gap in the earnings of men and women at large. Also related to this is that while women start their careers close to parity with men, the pay gap widens quite a bit between the ages of 35 and 44. Uh, this is when they are most likely to have young children at home. And this too is a long-standing pattern. Now, these effects of parenthood are part of a broader set of social and cultural norms that drive much of this um, persistence in the wage gap. So who takes care of elders or who takes time off for other family needs are examples of cultural norms that lead women to take bigger breaks from work or typically work fewer hours. There's also a lingering divide in the types of work men and women do. So women are still underrepresented in higher paying STEM or managerial jobs, for example, and overrepresented in lower paying personal care and service sector jobs. So overall, women's earnings have not trended up in the last 20 years at the same pace they did in the preceding 20 years, um, and the pay gap continues to persist. And as you mentioned that the pay gap continues to persist, there do seem to be some bright spots from your research as there was a 27 cent decrease in the pay gap among all part-time and full-time workers since 1982. While that has been a decline, from our perspective and from the perspective of others, we would assume, it has been a very slow point one at that. Um, from your perspective, why do you think that gap has not shrunk, shrunken faster um, up to this point? Well, more recently, there have been some economic headwinds for women. Uh, for example, women's employment was slower to recover from the Great Recession. Also, the COVID-19 recession was particularly focused on the service sector where women are overrepresented. And we still see lingering effects from the recession. So one 
outcome has been that in the last 20 years, there's been quite considerable slowdown in the growth in women's earnings. In the preceding 20 years, two factors drove the growth in women's earning at a much faster pace. One was women switched in greater number from part-time jobs to full-time jobs, adding to the labor market experience and moving into more uh, higher paying jobs. At the same time, they greatly increased their level of education. They used to lag behind men. Uh, by the turn of the century, they had caught up with men in the sheer graduating from college. And they did move up the occupational ladder. But around the turn of the century, those sort of progressions ceased. And the ceiling seems to be coming more from uh, outside the workplace, social and cultural norms in the family or in society at large. Pew conducted a study back in 2022 saying that 80% of adults that were surveyed said that, quote, women are treated differently by employers as a reason for the wage gap. I was wondering what other impacts and assumptions does the wage gap have on society? Well, yes, our survey did show that 80% of adults think that women being treated differently by employers is either a major or a minor reason for the pay gap. At the same time, 75% say that women tend to make different choices about balancing work and family. And 69% say women tend to work in jobs that pay less. So I think the best way to look at these results is that most U.S. adults think that multiple factors are at work, and not just the treatment of workers by their employers. So broadly speaking, people are pointing to workplace equity, family responsibilities, and personal choice as key factors. And these are the social aspects that people um, are looking at when they think about the gender pay gap. So from your research looking at the data itself, it appears that age is a factor itself within the pay gap as workers of age 25 to 34 earn about 92 cents per every dollar uh, a a man makes through there. So what makes the age group difference uh, in the gender pay gap significant as well? So when you're fresh out of college, ages 25 to 34, uh, you start your career. We do see that women start off fairly close to parity with men. Right now, they're making about 95 cents to the dollar in that age group. But the pay gap does widen around age 35, and that is coincidental with parenthood. In the age, around age 35 to 40, two-thirds of women have a young child at home. And that's when the family responsibilities really kick in. And it, many women withdraw from the labor force, at least temporarily. Um, many reduce their work hours. At the same time, men start putting in more work hours and getting rewarded at work as a result. So we see a widening of the pay pay gap as women age. Um, So you kind of talked about parenthood being a factor in the pay gap. And something that was personally really interesting to me is that the research presented by Pew kind of seemed to trend towards suggesting that being a mother can reduce a woman's earnings, whereas being a father could increase a man's earnings. Um, Could you unpack further like what factors may attribute to these findings and what led to that conclusion? It's not entirely understood. I mean, there does seem to be this phenomenon that fathers are not only more than women, but more than other men who do not have children at home. So there is some premium, some reward going 
towards fathers, one ex possible explanation is that in the marketplace, working longer hours is rewarded. So if you're somebody who's putting in 55, 60 hours a week on the job versus somebody else putting in 40 to 45 hours a week, the hourly pay of the person putting in more hours tends to be higher. Um, it's a signal that employers are sending perhaps that work more for us. Perhaps it's a signal of productivity. Perhaps it's a way of uh, for employers to recognize uh, family needs, but the channel is through fathers instead of mothers. But the end result is that even if women with young children at home don't make less than other women, we do see that fathers make more than anyone else on average. So the result is in around age 35, you see a bigger wage gap. And I was wondering, finally, what other research analysis could you do uh, regarding your findings? What other analysis we could do is um, dig deeper into uh, these norms uh, that operate outside of the workplace. Perhaps we could look at that through more survey work. Uh, because the data available to us through government surveys don't always touch those aspects. And Dr. Kuchar, before we let you go, is there anything you'd like to add, how our listeners can uh, find you or have learn more about your information at 3PU Research Center? Oh, yes. We are most, uh, anyone is most welcome to get in touch with us through, through our website. Uh, we are very open and communicative uh, to inquiries from the outside. Uh, I'm happy to uh, re address any queries. Uh, you know, all we are uh, fully accessible through our website. And again, that was Dr. Rakesh Kochar over there from the Hugh Research Center. Dr. Kochar, thank you again for joining us today and have a good one. You're welcome. Thank you. And then we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about some uh, Canadian international food. And so uh, stay tuned for that when we get through there. See you then. Hey, don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM WRHU. And welcome back, everybody. Again, listen to the Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM WRHU. Uh, if you missed it there, that was our interview with Dov uh, Dr. Rakesh Kochar over there from the Pew Research Center. Great to have them back on uh, over there as well. Of course, uh, Food for Soul by Bim Scala Bim right there. Uh, and one thing to note, of course, is that we all love food. I'm sure everybody does at some point uh, throughout their life. You have a favorite food or things like that. And granted, really good to also get that multicultural aspect uh, through food as well, through a lot of different venues. And and there was a New York Times Weekender article that I had found uh, over the weekend looking for stuff. And apparently uh, in Canada, they actually have their own, uh, I guess you'd say, a Michelin star uh, system itself uh, for more of those uh, multicultural dining spots out there in Toronto. Uh, it's by Suresh Das, who actually was a, a Sri Lankan immigrant himself. And he's actually a food writer for the Toronto Star and for the Canadian Broadcast Company. And so granted, he actually has a whole Michelin style listing of these restaurants. He actually does little food reviews through there. 
Uh, so according to the New York Times, they are mainly found, quote, next to coin laundromats or strip nail salons uh, through there as well. So granted, a lot of strip malls, kind of more of the, uh, I guess, smaller aspect than a lot of the main dining halls you might find in a large city like Toronto. Uh, some general examples that they're through there, uh, there's actually a, a jerk shop for oxtail that's really good out there for some heritage food there. Uh, Lion City has Singaporean cuisine through there. And if I pronounce this wrong, my apologies, but Mona Saba uh, for Yemeni dishes actually are also up there as well. Uh, so granted, I, I'm curious in terms of how we uh, consider food and how people interact with food in their everyday lives for interactions uh, because a lot of the times, of course, you might look at a particular side of what people consider to be, you know, fine dining or things that are actually, I guess, uh, considered, uh, you know, quality food in that sense and how that might work for you. I personally love learning about multicultural um, food in general because I do think it's a beautiful way for people to connect with things that they might never experience before. And I do think a lot of the times when it comes to multicultural food, you find the best options in places that aren't usually marketed like your Michelin star restaurants or things of that caliber. So it's great when people get to talk about um, just on a more local level, op different options for people and supporting like local businesses and actual like businesses that value the cultures that they represent or properly reflect them is always an amazing thing to see. Uh, no, most, most definitely, most definitely. I definitely think, um, you know, people talk about um, oftentimes different forms of art. I think, I think art can be, I think you could you consider this an art form, for example. Art art could be painting, writing, singing, cooking, any any form of expression. And and I and I kind of view it in in that way. I, I view it as as a form of art and sharing that. Um as a writer myself. But obviously. Mm -hmm. Cooking is different than writing. But still I consider cooking an art. Yeah. And I do think it's kind of fun to see how these locations are more described as like mom and pop shops that are kind of little known. Um, and like, especially when it's from like people who are immigrants and those are like their personal small businesses and things, it's, I think it's always better to spotlight those types of establishments rather than those multi million dollar restaurants that have marketing teams and things of that nature. So I always love when we get to turn the spotlights onto more intimate and personal dining establishments that have the stories and, um, the stories and the people of that culture. And I think that's always the best way to experience new things, things from those who are personally touched by and impacted by those stories and have personal connections to those dishes. So shout out all the small businesses. Yeah, granted, I, I'm curious what you all think about this, but in general, while it's more of that small area space, it's really only more known towards the immigrant community for what they have uh, for those restaurants because uh, there's one of the restaurateurs here uh, from Sri Lanka, and they said that, quote, uh, we have just a few white people, some Indians, and two, three Filipinos uh, who uh, have that, I guess, in terms of their own clientele itself. So I don't know, how, how do you necessarily expose that to a wider audience if you only are really restricted to kind of that, I guess, strip mall spot or that little mm -hmm. tiny mom-and-pop space? I, I think it's a combination of factors. A, people go to what they're familiar with, and people kind of stick with groups that share the same values so if you are from um, somebody who immigrated from a specific country you're more likely to connect with people from that similar background and heritage on that personal level because they understand the stories behind the food and the you know flavors and the customs and the specialties and it's always kind of a sherry, scare, sherry a scary thing to share aspects of yourself with people who are unfamiliar with it 
So I see it from the business standpoint. It might be hard to feel comfortable to reach out to an audience beyond those who are familiar with what you're doing because there's always room for like negative interactions. Like I have friends who are from all around the country who have families from, or not the country, all around the world who have families from all around the world. And I remember in like middle school, they'd bring like their cultural based dishes and like people would just make fun of them because they'd be like, oh, that's weird or it smells funny. And it can be disheartening to go through. I personally have never experienced it as an individual, but I've witnessed it happen to other people. And it's really sad to see when something that is so beautiful and so personal, like food, um, which is the language of everyone, in my opinion, can be demonized because it looks different or it smells different. I don't like when people describe people's food as weird or bad or gross. Um, Just because it's different doesn't mean it's a bad thing and it doesn't give you the right to act like you'd never want to experience that part of culture just because you don't understand what it is so i understand it can be a scary thing and i think people just need to be comfortable with exploring places off the beaten path for lack of better words yeah no i i'll agree with you on that because i went i actually i know you mentioned will at the top of the hour i mentioned this hour too but i went to his birthday party and of course uh wilson jamaican heritage and all that and they uh, they had a goat over there and like oxtail and i never had it before but i was like this is some, this is good goat i was mm-hmm. like dang because you know and you just get exposed to all that and, you know you know all the all the uh, you know flavors and materials were there but it was really good i really enjoyed it it was nice to have mm-hmm. but then you also get that experience too like granted i understand that i'm not a part of the culture or anything like that but at least i can appreciate that uh for through food aspects as well but is, is there any uh like different cultures food that you enjoy as well is there any like other shots i know we got a hamza and medina that's right nearby yeah. here in Astra. people love going there for halal food mm-hmm. uh, but what what would you say itself is um i have always really had a good time with thai food i love thai food um i remember the first time i had thai food i was in high school that was really good. I have a friend um, back in high school. Her name's Hana. She is half Japanese, um, and her family was really sweet and very kind and just sharing. Well, specifically her mom. Her mom is Japanese. Her dad is white. Her mom really was open and welcoming to sharing that culture with her, um, with us in general. So I've always had a great time when her mom would like cook for us whenever we went over. My friend Akshaya, um, she is Sri Lankan, and I when we were... A part of her culture is at when she turned, I don't remember what age she was, but instead of like a birthday party, a part of like growing up is having a cultural dance that you show to friends and families. Um, I don't remember what it was called, but I remember going and supporting her. And it was such a beautiful experience because I got to meet her extended family that were there, people from her culture and her background that were there and just be there as her friend. And it was just a beautiful experience. And the food was also amazing. Sri Lankan food is great as well. So I think just like having friends from diverse backgrounds has really exposed me to things that I would have never experienced before as an African-American person growing up in Massachusetts. Um, And it's always just fun to just get out there and explore the world in comfortable ways with friends and loved ones. So people should do that more often. Mike, any any culture food you enjoy at all? Anything you get an appreciation for? Oh, okay. Let's see. Um... It's going to sound generic. Italian, um, Japanese food, uh, I think it's great. Thai food, I tried it for the first time uh, I, a few weeks ago. It was really good. But, 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 but yeah, no, I um, see me, I, my my dad thinks I'm a picky eater. So he, said, he says I have five, five things that I eat. Um, I don't know what those five things are, but... <laughs> but 
I have five things that I eat, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Well, there's there's definitely a lot of aspects and cultures to get to, especially uh, here around Hempstead, on the island, all across the United States. So definitely go and appreciate that, and hopefully we can we can have uh, we can have uh, uh, Mr. Doss over there go and try some food from the United States, at least uh, United States in a cultural sense, if need be, uh, through that as well, which could be a good aspect to have as well. Because again, the article also mentioned how a lot of the times with the immigrant families, they come from a couple like second, third generations that'll come over here, but the flavors change in that aspect too. So it'd be interesting to see how, let's say, maybe, uh, I don't know, like uh, French Sri Lankan cuisine could be different than Canadian Sri Lankan cuisine. So it'd be interesting to see how that aspect works too. Uh, Dallas, I know we do have our interview coming up, but I know we do have some time. So feel free if you want to go through that last story we have uh, yeah. for the half hour. So go this ahead. This is kind of more of a quick story from the AP, and it does revolve around uh, an incident that happened in New York with the New York bike path incident. So a split... A split among jurors means that there will be no death penalty for what is who is described as an Islamic dis- extremist convicted of, quote, maniacally racing a truck alongside a popular New York City bike path that unfortunately killed eight people and maimed others. This decision means that uh, the person who is a resident who lived in New Jersey gets an automatic life se- sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole in October of tr- in the October 2017 attack. Jurors told the judge Monday that they were unable to reach the unanimous verdict that required for a death sentence. Jurors and attorneys left the courthouse afterwards without speaking to reporters gathered in the rain outside. And in a statement, U.S. Attorney Damian Williams thanked the families of the dead and the survivors for, quote, their patience and understanding as the legal process played out. Um, So this was a story that I just want to bring up because it happened in New York again in 2017, and it is unfortunate to see how many lives were lost. And this is kind of just a quick update on the results of the trial um, for those who might have been following since 2017 or people who have not seen it in the headlines as of recently. Um, So there will be no death penalty in the result of this trial, but the uh, attacker will get life without the possibility of parole. Yeah, granted, I'm I'm never really a big fan of the death penalty itself, uh, mm-hmm. but granted, I feel that a lot of the times when it comes to uh, the prison system itself, or at least in these particular cases, uh, where you do have uh, people that do go to these uh, extremes in this nature, that I think it's important that they, they reflect on their actions through their prison sentence, if need be. Uh, but granted, I, I, I just never think the death penalty is really a good option either way, because at the same time, do families really get reconciliation through that? Because granted, they're just, it, it's kind of almost like a, like, I guess in that sense, almost a like get out of jail free card, if anything else. They don't really have to think about their actions then, because they did it, and now, well, while they might not be here, they're not going to have to reconcile with that, if anything mm-hmm. else. So that that's just my own thing there. My, my Luke soapbox today. <laughs> uh, but I guess uh, one thing, at least in the AP article through here, was that all 12 jurors agreed that life in prison provides hope uh, that the uh, that the accused may one day understand the wrongfulness of his conduct. Uh, and uh, seven agreed that were, there were factors in his life, personal traits, character, or background, or other circumstances that made them a favor of life sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely interesting to see the perspectives of jurors because really it depends who's on that bench, you know? So you really definitely have to uh, guide for that aspect too. But Mike, Mike, what would you say in terms of this situation? Because obviously you, you have eight people killed on a bike path through New York City. If you were necessarily on that jury pool, would you kind of consider that same aspect or would you say something different? That's okay. It's a tough question. That, that it's a it's a it's a really tough question. Um, I'm because I I usually I usually am anti death penalty. Um, 
I would not give him the death penalty. Um, I mean, he did a terrible thing. Like, I'm not vouching for him. He did a terrible thing. But I, I think, I think like what you said, having them sit there, having them contemplate what they did, having them really, really soak that in, is a, is a better route to go than just ending it quickly. A lot of people say ending it quickly is like a form of salvation. So what, what would you say then in that sense of what, what I guess all, I don't know, alternative wise, but what, what the implications could be I, in, in that sense for his own uh, recompense if need be? I think. Um, though just the way the prison system itself is structured, it is very difficult to give avenues for rehabilitation uh, just because the United States prison system is very much focused on punishment and not risk, uh, like rehabilitation in terms of not necessarily in this case because he was given a uh, life without the possibility of parole for average convicted felons. There's not a lot of programs in place that promote what happens when you get out of prison and being better post that so just the way the prison system is set up it's a focus on punishment and not rehabilitation um and that's my personal opinion on the matter but i do agree with the both of you that the death penalty is something that i personally am not a fan of and not in favor of because it inherently says that we are allowed to take the life of another in order to punish that and i just don't feel comfortable making that call in general but i do think that just having you have to sit with that experience and with that knowledge and maybe going through some form of a counseling program or things of that nature to reflect on the action that that person committed um, in terms to come to terms with just how bad that was and how that's not okay um, is really important. Just giving a reflection period to really understand the consequences of their own actions. Yeah, I mean, granted, I know that it's kind of like the Hammurabi code back in the day, right? It's the mm-hmm. eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life situation. I think that's more of an archaic system than I think we need to have in society today. Uh, yet it, it is still uh, relevant in these cases if need be, but definitely something to consider uh, as the time goes on. Um, as time also goes on, we also have our interviewee actually on Zoom right now. So we're going to go and throw it uh, to them while we can as well. Uh, so granted, uh, over time itself, the intelligent quotient, as I'm sure many people know, IQs and things like that, has always been a standard in terms of intelligence and educational standards. Uh, but over time, this is supposed to increase when, with society uh, as we can continue to adapt and evolve through society and progression goes through uh, in knowledge bases. Um, but however, it hasn't necessarily been the case uh, for new research here uh, that we're going to discuss on a longitudinal study basis uh, for a number of years. Uh, so here to discuss itself is Dr. Elizabeth Dworak, a research assistant professor of medical school sciences for the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Dr. Dworak, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So just for our listeners to get a general better understanding for the study itself, what what does an IQ test specifically measure uh, in this sense? Um, So my first answer is probably going to sound a little cheeky, but the simplest answer is that an IQ test is meant to measure, well, intelligence. It's supposed to quantify that in cognitive ability. But the the more in-depth answer is that, well, it depends what test are you talking about, what theory are you applying to it, uh, but most researchers are often, it's broken down into a person's abstract reasoning and their kind of ability to 
process information, make analogies, things like that, um, or things that you've gained over time. So things you might be learning in school, things that you might be learning as you're going throughout life that you're able to apply to the everyday. Um, there's some others that kind of focus more on verbal educational or like spatial mechanical. So you start getting in things that might sound like a STEM field where you're doing rotations. And then there's, again, people that want to split into three groups then that are more that, well, why can't it be this more what you learn over a lifetime, the abstract stuff and this visual rotation information. Uh, specifically for the study, we tried to get information on a range of types or domains of cognitive ability. Um, so you might see that there's these four domains that are mentioned throughout the paper that we put out um, where there's matrix reasoning, which is kind of like a puzzle task that asks you to like look at some pictures and figure out what's the missing picture in a three by three. Um, what comes next? What's the analogy that you can make? There's letter and number series, which is more computational mathematical. So I can ask you, okay, two, four, six, eight, what comes next? Um, people are a lot more used to those. And then same with verbal reasoning tasks, where I might ask you to solve a problem with information you've learned. Like if the day after tomorrow is two days before Thursday, then what day is today? And then finally, we looked at 3D rotation. So if I were to present you a cube and give you three symbols on it, um, I would ask you to tell me, well, if you rotated this cube, what might it look like? How can you conceptualize that? And so just diving a little bit more specifically into your study, it was shown that a reverse Flynn effect was found for compositability scores within a U large US adult sample. For our listeners, what is the Flynn effect or the reverse Flynn effect, and how does it relate to this study specifically? Yeah, so the Flynn effect is a phenomenon named after Dr. James Flynn um, that IQ scores have been increasing from 1932 through the 20th century. Um, but it, it is important for people to remember that, and Dr. Flynn was really adamant about talking about this, is just because scores are going up, that doesn't actually mean that individuals are getting smarter than their grandparents. Um, it's not this magic switch. And same with reversals, just because you're seeing scores going down, that doesn't mean that you can say the opposite, that I'm just so worse off than my grandparent. Um, really, it just means for the Flynn effect specifically, if it's going up, scores are higher for newer cohorts, seem to be favoring them. Um, if it's going down, it's not favoring them. Uh, there's a lot of questions about what's causing it. Everyone wants to know what's causing it, and no one really has a, has nailed down that question yet and been able to answer it. Um, but in terms of the reversal, and some people say that there's a stagnation in the increases, um, over the last few decades, starting in around the 1980s, um, people started picking up on that these trends weren't as continuous as Flynn had been positing. And outside of his work in the United States, there really hasn't been um, very much research that isn't using a child or adolescent sample. So for the most recent child and adolescent samples, there's a lot of increases that have been observed. But again, before you asked, well, what does a test measure? Well, 
all these different studies measure different things. So some of them have done math scores, verbal scores, visual spatial scores, reading scores, and they were increasing at varying rates, but there hasn't really been that much research on adult trends. Um, just going through the literature, it's mostly been by a meta-analysis by Trannon and colleagues in 2014 that found that there was a general increase going up until 2010. And then Twang et al. in 2019, looking specifically at vocab scores, found a decline. So for us, this really inspired the paper of what's going on, what's happening. We have this large sample. Why don't we look at it? And we'll see what we find. And I'm going to be honest, we were hoping to find an increase. So this study has been conducted uh, continuously over 10 years. Why is it important to have long-lasting studies for this kind of research? Yeah, so this one is limited. So the study is still ongoing. We're nearly at 20, or next year will be the 20th year of data collection, actually. Um, and it's cross-sectional data. So people that are taking it are only taking it once. We exclude anyone that takes it more than once when we do these kind of studies. Um, so it's mostly important to be able to get that like breadth of information because you wanna be able to get a stable projection or stable trend so that you can get a better idea of what's going on. Uh, that's especially true because not all trends are like linear. It's not always a straight line. Um, it could be kind of curvy. You might be seeing dips in certain years. So it provides a lot more information to the study when you look at it that way. And we're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Dvorak here from Northeastern, Northwestern University, I should say, my apologies, uh, on the aspect of IQ scores there. Uh, so, Dr. Dvorak, you described the aspect of gender itself in the study because, of course, important on any study, of course, is the aspect of sample sizes and how much of the population that you do get. Uh, and granted, you stated that your study was uh, disproportionately female identifying. So what, what effect did this necessarily have on your data collection itself? Yeah, so uh, disproportion, that was a reviewer argument, or not an argument, disagreement. Um, I wanted to say predominantly female identifying, but you'll learn with academic writing that you always want to take your reviewer's feedback seriously. Um, so because there's been a large number of studies that rely on data collected when men sign up for their country's draft, there really isn't a lot of talk in terms of how female or like women or female identifying individuals um, factor into the increases or decreases. And they're just, they're not really included in a lot of the research. And I think that's a big shame. Um, but in terms of how it would impact the study, uh, I don't think it would impact the study very much because one of my colleagues, Dr. Stephanie Young, She's actually done research using ICAR to show that the items perform the same across binary gender. So you shouldn't see a difference in performance. Um, so we weren't too worried about it. It's just one of those things where it kind of makes the study different than a lot of the ones that have been done before. So from my understanding of IQ scores and kind of this research, it kind of focuses on cognitive functioning. Uh, just as a theoretical question, what could the effects of a society with an overall lower cognitive function be, if any at all? Yeah, so it's not really what the study found. So like we weren't focusing on that as much. Um, 
But especially because like in our sample, we found that the level of education has been increasing over time, which is exciting. Um, but even then certain scores, it was a mixed bag and the results were like, well, some of these were lower. If we focus on certain domains, some of these were similar and some of them were higher in newer samples, even though education was going up. So obviously IQ uh, testing is, is a very, it's one of the most commonly used forms, tests to measure intelligence. Now, but I wanted to ask, is the IQ test the only measure of intelligence that we should be using? As in, is there another form of intelligence measurement that would contradict any of these findings? Yeah, so this is, again, this is where, what does an IQ test gets kind of messy because they can measure, measure all sorts of things. Um, I think Dr. James Swins actually had a really great quote that I think about a lot. And it's it's very philosophical, even though um, I'm here with doing research and not in philosophy, but it's what what is intelligence? Like, how do we conceptualize it? What, what does it mean to us? Um, and I think about that a lot when I do this research, especially in terms of what an increase or decrease could mean. So for this specifically, we're finding increases in the 3D rotation items, for example. And those ones are statistically our hardest items. Like you can figure out by looking at, I'm not gonna get too far into the stats for you, um, but by looking at like the difficulty parameter um, in an IRT model, like you can see that like those are the art, the items that they're really hard for people to do. So it's interesting that those are going up, but then you have things like matrix reasoning, letter and number series, um, which are more on that. The trend is going downward where newer cohorts are doing worse. So it's one of those I think you could contradict it. I mean, the study itself, it's a lot of the headlines I've been reading. It's they haven't looked at the domain scores to see that it's kind of nuanced when you focus on different types of ability. Um, but again, there's all these other studies out there that use other measurements of IQ. So things looking specifically at verbal and how those are increasing in children and adolescents within the United States, like those are showing an upward trend and that's contradicting it. So I guess at the end of the day, it's just broader constructs, more research is just gonna help us understand what's going on. And Dr. Dwork, before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to add? And additionally, I know you said you're still this research is still ongoing, but anything that you could possibly do in the future for this research to accommodate for that, or what else you're trying to look for in that sense? Yeah, so outside of digging more into the specific data, I mean, we're still collecting more data, so we could always add some more points to the study. Um, I know a lot of people have been wondering what COVID did to our data, and we just I had to finish grad school and get my PhD and go start a job. And I just haven't had time to look at it. Yet. Um, but also getting a hold of some other samples that have access to data sets that 
uh, use different constructs. So digging in more to see like, well, we saw this in our study, does it replicate to a new data set? Um, can we see if the trends are going in the same direction, things like that. Um, outside of directly working on the Flynn effect, I'm also working on a handful of other projects that are dealing with cognitive ability. So one of them is the mobile toolbox, which is focusing on doing, developing and validating cognitive measures that can be done remotely on your smartphone. And those include a lot of the items that we have in the study. So then eventually using maybe data from that to be able to do something. Um, and then we also have some, the team that I work with, we have some ongoing research that's also focused on improving cognitive measures for detecting mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease in older adults. And then also we're developing a battery to test function in infants and toddlers. So motor function, cognitive function, sensory function. Uh, behavioral function, everything like that. So kind of a mixed bag, hopefully a lot coming out. And then how can our listeners get in contact with you if anything else, if they do want to learn more about your research? Oh, yeah. Uh, they can feel free to email me um, at elizabeth.dwarak at northwestern.edu. Um, we're always looking for possible grad students or postdocs. So if anyone's interested in coming to do some work with us and learning more, happy happy to have that conversation too. And again, that was Dr. Elizabeth Dworak there from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Dr. Dworak, thank you again for joining us today and have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. All good. Otherwise, we are going to go and take a breakthrough here, and then we're going to talk about, of course, the Oscars themselves. We will get to that in just a little bit, so we'll see you then. The frequency, 88.7 FM. The call letters, WRHU. The website, WRHU.org. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. So welcome back. This is the Tuesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call with myself, Dallas Jackson, Mikey Dent, and Luke Farrell. We're getting towards the end of our show, so we kind of wanted to dive more into pop culture news as Sunday was the 95th annual Oscar Academy Awards and just run down the winners from this most recent award season and highlight some of our favorites, maybe some that we think were snubbed. But to kick us off, I just want to say, as I said last week, everything, everywhere, all at once walked away with, I think, all of the major awards, which I am very, very proud of and very, very happy about because it was my favorite movie. So one for Best Picture, um, Ki Hoi Kwan, one for Actor in a Supporting Role in his speech, once again, made me cry. Um, he is an amazing at giving speeches in general. But one thing that I slightly disagree with, disagree with is Actress in a Supporting Role went to Jamie Lee Curtis. For everything everywhere all at once i personally believe that it either should have went to stephanie shu who's also in the same movie and played a bigger role in that movie or to angela bassett for her role in black panther black panther wakanda forever so those are my that's one point that i was kind of taken aback by from this most recent oscar season yeah i i myself did not watch the oscars but i remember the jimmy lee curtis angela bassett 
uh, spot going off through there. Uh, granted, I know the Academy usually, and I think with a lot of the awards organizations are like, if you've been around for so long and you've kind of had that leverage, they try and give you more of that uh, statuette after all that time if need be. But I know Angela Bassett and Jamie Lee Curtis all are both 64 years old. Just mm-hmm. actually are, they all are the same age through there. Uh, and granted, I, I did not see Black Panther Wakanda forever myself, uh, but granted, I know that was something that was uh, considered through there as well. Uh, otherwise, I mean, actually, the only major award everything everywhere all wants to not win was Best Actor. That went to Brandon Fraser for The Whale. Uh, Austin Butler did not win for Elvis. I know people were, people were I guess, uh, off on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but granted, uh, they just the everything everywhere all one just wasn't nominated itself uh, for that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but granted, yeah, I, I do remember that being a big focal point uh, at the end as well. Yeah, especially on social media because personally, Jamie Lee Curtis was her role in Everything Everywhere All at Once. She only had like, she had the least amount of screen time between the top four actors in that movie. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Hsu, who was also nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, had a larger role and much more screen time. And I think a more difficult role in general, just by nature of her playing um, the daughter Joy, as well as jo- Jobu Tabaki, who is the villain of the story, um, or quote unquote villain. Watch the movie if you haven't. Um, so that just felt disheartening to see that Stephanie Hsu had an amazing performance. And also Angela Bassett for her role in Black Panther Wakanda Forever was gut-wrenching and sad. And she was snubbed. I hate to say it, I really do. Jamie Lee Curtis is great, but this is the snub of snubs for this award season. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. Um another thing that that's been brought to my attention is is that the Batman did not win any Oscars. Um Look, let me let me tell you something. March fourth, two thousand twenty two. I did not see the movie that day. I saw the movie the day after. Um, I walked into the theater ready. I I made my grandmother watch this trailer like ten times minimum. I'm walking into the theater. I'm I'm I'm, I'm so excited. I left I left the theater a changed man. I am Batman. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh no 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 real talk though that that movie was, Batman was amazing um mm-hmm. and and I and I think I think there is a bias against comic book based films when it when it comes to media awards I I, I look at Batman the cinematography was outstanding the acting was outstanding the the writing was amazing um the, the it, now it was nominated for three categories but it but it didn't win any I mean I I. I, I think I, I think it shows that, that, that once again there's there's a bias behind comic book films when it comes to the Academy. I was gonna say I think the only one I remember was of course Heath Ledger's Posters Award yeah. for The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. but that's really been about it since then. There was uh, yeah, go ahead. Heath Ledger for the joke, his role as the Joker. Um, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse also won for Best Animated Film when it was nominated. Just because that movie also like just transformed the way animated films work. Like if you look at animated films post that production, they now mimic a lot of its style just because it was so groundbreaking. And I do believe that Black, the original Black Panther, also won in some categories. I do believe it was for costume design, the first Black Panther. I will check. I think I believe, but as Mikey mentioned, the Batman was nominated for three different categories. The only category that I. thought it would walk away with was achievement in sound design um just because of some of the scenes were just so shocking the way sound design worked um other movies that were nominated in the category was all quiet on the western front which i thought that in the batman as well as elvis was also nominated in that category would go toe to toe 
for it. But Top Gun Maverick walked away with the win, so that was kind of an odd pick for me. Other things it was uh, nominated for was visual effects, but it lost to Avatar The Way of the Water just because that is a visual effect Marvel um, just in general. And then it also lost for makeup and hairstyling. And it lost to The Whale, which is another category that I disagree with. I think either Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Elvis, or The Batman were better examples of great makeup and hairstyling in general. Just if you watch um, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, you could just see how that impacts it, and even with Elvis specifically as well. But those are my two cents on those three categories. I'll just say, Dallas, uh, yes, Best Costume Design, they won. They were nominated for six, sorry, sorry, five Academy Awards, winning one. Ruth Carter was the costume designer uh, for Black mm. Panther, the original one. I, I'm going to go back, actually, super quick to the uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Angela Bassett spot because it was actually, we watched uh, Network, but it was a movie back in 1978 over there, and uh, Beatrice Strait, who had won for her performance in that role, only had five minutes and two seconds of screen time, and she won an Academy Award. Oh, wow. Uh, so, granted, I, I guess screen time isn't too much of a factor, I guess, in winning awards. I'm kind of curious in uh, who uh, she beat out on that end, uh, but... I'm just curious what you think, if that has to do with anything in terms of awards there, too. But granted, we also know, like, the Oscars So White uh, hashtag that usually trends every year, mm-hmm. uh, considering those natures as well. So that certainly plays a factor, mm-hmm. too. But um, another category that I just want to touch on is animated feature film went to Gilmar Del Toro's Pinocchio, which is a very beautiful movie. However, my pick would have been Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. It is an odd pick, but if you have not watched Puss in Boots, I have successfully gotten seven people to watch it, and they all agreed that it was much more emotionally impactful than they expected it to be. Um, I cried like a baby. It is a beautiful movie visually. It's also inspired by um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse with similar animation techniques and styles. But just the story at its core is beautiful and heart-wrenching, and I love... um, all the characters so watch Puss in Boots The Last Wish I promise it will change your life and we're gonna have to leave you at that so (laughs) from Dallas watch Puss in Boots The Last Wish Uh, so definitely have that granted hopefully you enjoy your week everybody I know it's gonna be a fun time through there for you of course for Hofstra spring break next week but don't you worry we are still going to have a Tuesday show as far as we know Uh, so we will let you know through that but please make sure to listen every Monday through Friday for the morning wake up call as well so otherwise we will see you around (laughs) 